Hello and welcome back to another episode of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And today's guest is Matt Mahmood Ogston. Matt is the founder of the Naz and Matt Foundation, a charity he set up to honour the memory of his late fiancée, Dr. Nazim Mahmood, who took his own life just days after coming out to his deeply religious family and telling them that he was in a 13-year relationship with Matt. He jumped to his death from the balcony of his apartment in 2014, aged just 34. The Naz and Matt Foundation campaigns against homophobia in schools and universities and provides help to LGBTQ members who have been rejected by their religious families and communities. The charity's mission is to never let any religion or culture come between the unconditional love of a parent and child. I first came across Matt a couple of months back on BBC Breakfast News and I was really moved by his heartbreaking story. I'm very pleased he agreed to talk to me as I really wanted to include his story on the podcast and to learn more about faith-based and cultural homophobia. During the interview, Matt told me about how he and Naz met, his own coming out story, the elaborate lengths he and Naz went to to keep their relationship private and the events which led up to Naz's death. Special thanks to Matt for doing this interview and sharing his and Naz's story with us as I can only imagine what he has been through over the last few years and how hard it must be to open up and to talk about it. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating, review and subscribe as it really helps me and other people to discover the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thanks for listening and here it is. So I'm going to start by reading a quote from Mary Hasselt, uh, the coroner of NASA's inquest, who said this. It seems desperately sad that in 2014, a person feels they can't be accepted because of the way they live. I have deepest sympathy for Nazim that he felt so sad and desperate. Matt, can you tell us about what kind of person Nazim was? Naz was the most beautiful, caring, loyal, incredible man that I'll ever meet. He was courageous, he was brave, he had the most amazing sense of humour. And I think he always wanted to um, see in other people was was happiness, a smile. You know, he spent so much of his life caring for other people. He was a GP, he'd also worked in hospitals, in accident emergency, in sexual health. And in his life, there was this common thread in everything that he did was that he always wanted to see the best in people and he was never afraid of asking questions. He was beautiful in in, in every regard and his honesty was... He was the most honest person that I ever met. You know, he he always wanted to know the truth and he would never stop until he found the truth. And it was always from the place of just trying to understand what life is and that person that he was speaking to or that person that was his friend or that person he, he met. He just wanted to understand how life worked and just understand people. Um, always from a really positive place. And Matt, how did you meet Nazim? So I met Naz on a night out. Um, I'd recently come out to myself. Um, at the age of 23, I'd finally got the courage to be stronger than the homophobia and the kind of prejudice that I saw towards gay people in the area that I grew up. So at the age of 23, I finally accepted the fact that I was gay, although at the time I would never accept that word. I would never use that word to describe myself. I just happened to be attracted to to other men. But at the age of 23, I I'd started uh, just started going out on the gay scene in, in, in Birmingham and on a night out. So, sorry, had you come out to your family or friends at that point yourself? No, I'd only come out to myself and probably about two or three other people who were very close to me. So um, close friends? Yes. Yeah. Uh, I never came out to my family to probably about another 
11 years after that. And you said, you mentioned there that you didn't, you weren't entirely comfortable in the beginning with the word gay. Did it carry really negative connotations for you when you were coming to terms with your sexuality? Yes, it was a very negative word in the area that I grew up. You know, I used to work with someone, um, I think I was working for about, for about four years part-time. And this person I, I kind of considered as a, as a friend. And I had gone into work one day and I was um, just exploring who, who I was in my own mind. And um, there was a lot of homophobic talk about someone else that worked in the office. And I said to this person, I said, look, if I uh, came into work one day and I told you I was gay, you know, what would you think? Yeah, And this person said, I would never speak to you ever again. So that's someone I've worked with for four years. It's awful to hear. And it used to be so much so that the, you know, the office that I worked, if they saw someone anywhere close in the vicinity of one of the gay clubs in Birmingham, even if they were just catching the bus near it, um, which, you know, a lot of people do, that would come back into the office and there would be negativity, there would be kind of uh, slurs, there would be, you know, just a horrible thing said about person and up until that point I had only ever met one gay person or knowingly met one other gay person and that person wasn't creating the right impressions in my mind because I thought if if I'm gay then does that make me that person but that person was behaving that way because that's the way they behaved it just wasn't because they were gay it was just that's the way they behaved so there was a huge amount of ignorance around homosexuality and there was a really strong homophobic culture in the world you grew up in Yes, and from myself as well. You know, I had... It becomes internalised, isn't yes. it? We, yeah, it's, it's happened to us all. It's hard for it not in a way when you do grow up in such a homophobic world not to assimilate some of that yourself. Yes, because we are all the product of our journey, yeah. of our upbringing. Yeah. And unless you're given the opportunity to learn all the information or to be shown different ways of living the same life, then how is a person supposed to know that there is a different way of looking at things, a different perspective of things? You know, you know, I grew up, you know, in the in the eighties and nineties. You know, when in the eighties there was the horrific T V campaigns um from the government on yeah. T V which just put you know, the fear in so many people, um, gay or otherwise. And those are what really fed into my fear of being gay and also when I was getting older just seeing stereotypes on TV which I have no problem with at all but I couldn't identify with those stereotypes and they weren't those stereotypes were not someone I could acknowledge or recognize having any connection to you know very you know camp people on TV I mean now now I'm older and now I'm more mature and now I'm understanding I mean I, I mean I, I love camp beyond belief but back then when I was trying to find out a place in the world for mm. me to identify with I couldn't find anything or anyone there wasn't a very diverse representation back then no it there was, was very little representation at all yeah I think the the, the kind of closest was uh, I think it was just before or around the time I met Naz I mean Queer as Folk came on TV mm. And I remember watching that, you know, half hiding under the duvet, you know, fearing that my family might walk in and see me watching this. And half of me was actually horrified about what I was seeing on TV because I thought, they, is that who I am and that's what I what I have to be if, if I am G-A-Y? And I actually feared that thing I was watching on TV because it was a thousand miles away from anything that I'd ever even been, you know, been introduced to. You know, sex education at school was embarrassing for everyone involved um the teachers were embarrassed by doing it and it was always you know obviously you know it was back then it was heterosexual only so therefore there was no awareness of what being gay was and that it is a natural state to be in it's how we're born that was never a concept that was even talked about where i was growing up yeah we've even mentioned that in the last few podcasts but that's a relatively short period of time ago it's only two decades ago but the cultural shift has been enormous yes yeah and so to circle back to that night that you met Naz so you met Naz when you were out on the gay scene in Birmingham mm -hmm. and you quickly became an item is that right yes yeah, so he I mean I was sitting there I remember the you know the, we were in an after hours nightclub it was the first time I'd ever been to one of these things you know there was a cafe at the back at the, up the stairs Romantically called uh, the Naf Caf. Uh, <laughs> so I'm sitting there eating a chicken burger, very unromantic. And then, 
you know, along came this um, sweet, delicate voice that, that said to me, excuse me, may I sit here, please? And in that moment, my whole life changed forever because in that moment, Naz had arrived and he sat down and we started talking and talking. And, we, you know, we never stopped talking for, for 13 years because we quickly fell in love and we realised that, but to be ourselves, you know, we couldn't live in Birmingham because going back to the point I mentioned earlier about how honest Naz was, he always wanted honesty and the truth is that one of the first questions he asked me after, you know, asking my name and could he sit down was, you know, I am Muslim, is that going to be a problem? Now imagine being asked such a profound question. Well, I had to give that some thought because why would somebody ask me that question? Because it didn't, it didn't matter to me. But I had to give it some thought and I realised that some of the people that I was hanging around with, they would have a problem and I made a decision that night that I never wanted to see those people again because how can anyone have a problem with a wonderful man like Naz? And that question was was a really important question because from that moment, you know, I knew, you know, part of Naz's life journey as well. I knew some of the struggles that he was going through with his own yeah. family from that moment that we met. So... Yeah. Um, you know, I've been asked before, you know, was that a problem? How do you deal with it? How do you cope? I was like, well, but that was just our situation. So yeah. why wouldn't we deal with it and cope with it together as a as, as, a, as a couple? Because that was now our shared problem. Uh, obviously, it was Naz's family. But, you know, when you fall in love with someone, you know, your journey becomes their journey, their journey becomes your journey, and you become one person, really. So you and Naz decided then to really be yourselves. You had to move to London. Is that right? Well, within a few weeks of meeting Naz, I'd moved out of my family home. I wanted to rent a flat so I could spend more time with Naz. But he couldn't move out of his family home because he was still studying at the time. Yeah. And also his parents would never allow him to unless he was going to get, you know, he was getting married to move out of the family home. So, so he had all these cultural and religious pressures to deal with, didn't yes. he? And he had to think about, he was worried about society being homophobic towards him. But also he was worried about people being Islamophobic towards him. Yes, I mean, back then we, you know, we wouldn't use those words ourselves. There were, yeah. you know, these were the things that we faced. But, but in, in conceptual terms, yes, that's what we were facing. He would be fearful of targeting someone because of his religious background or his, the, the religion he was born into, rather. And also he was fearful of the, 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 the homophobia from his family, really, the, the fear of him being gay. So we kind of, we moved into our own house eventually after about 18 months, I think it was. And yeah, we thought that was fantastic and it was wonderful. But the problem is that, you know, we couldn't walk down the street together because we feared that his parents might see us. We couldn't go to the shops together and walk around the supermarket together. We would always walk a few paces apart when we were down the street and in the shops and we had to keep our blinds closed because we feared they might drive past and look through the window. And these were, and it wasn't so much... It was the fear of the unknown. It was the fear of we we can't allow them to find out because Naz had said if they if they find out they will be round at the front door and they'll be praying until we're no longer together and he's no longer gay. So we, there was a risk we couldn't take. So after you know living in that house maybe for about eighteen months, we just realised that we 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 can't survive like this. So we we literally. Uh, ran away to, to London to start a new life. We had, um, you know, several weeks of savings in the bank. We, Naz was applying for jobs as a doctor because now he's qualified. And thankfully, we, you know, we got um, jobs in London just about, um, like about three weeks apart from each other. That must have taken a huge toll on the both of you, constantly censoring yourself and monitoring your surroundings and to see if people, how people are reacting to you. That must have been taking a huge toll on you. On reflection, yes, but at the time, both of us, it was just something that we just did. You know, going to work and having to change pronouns when somebody would ask about your weekend and, you know, what did you get up to with your girlfriend? You know, yeah. you know back then, neither of us were out, so we certainly couldn't correct them and we didn't want to and there was no need to. So we would, the only way to have a conversation, we would change you know, her or she to they, and hoped that nobody really noticed. And they didn't really notice. They probably just thought it was a bit odd changing pronouns to they. You know, where did you go out at the weekend with your girlfriend? Uh, mm. You know, we went to the cinema and, you know, it was their birthday and things like that. But then moving to London, we, we, we kind of realised that, you know, in, a, in many areas in London, not all areas, but in many areas in London, you know, and particularly the companies I worked in, no one actually really cared. 
And so when you both got to London, you must have felt an incredible sense of relief. Yes, relief and also uh, excitement. I mean, you know, back then we were both uh, consciously aware that we were both naive in life. Um, but that's what made a lot of it fun. You know, we would rather, you know, we'd rather go out and see what adventures were in front of us rather than kind of question everything so we didn't do anything, if you know what I mean. So but yeah. being in London, not knowing anyone was the excitement. It meant that we could create this whole new life together as a couple, a life that was our life and nobody else's life. And for us, living in London was, you know, the greatest adventure that we'd, we'd ever had, really. You had a blank slate to begin with, didn't you? Yeah, we yeah. could, you know, we could pick where we lived. We could, you know, the people we bumped into, um, you know, later became our friends. You know, we could do what we wanted, really. You know, obviously within the constraints of, as an adult with a mortgage, yeah. and, um, you know, life and jobs and everything. But, you know, but it was our it was our life and that was what made it exciting. And... Did you get a chance when you were in London to experience the gay culture and the gay world as well? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I remember we, uh, we before we actually moved down, we'd come down four times uh, to see Bombay Dreams, okay. um, a fantastic play, a musical. Um, we came down four times, you know, trying to find out where the best places were to, to go out, to experience and live and everything. Um, and when we eventually came down to London, we um, I remember we went out to Soho and spare in mind, we don't know anything about London. We just literally don't know anything. We just know there's a gay area and there's a gay street. We don't know what the gay street's called, but there's a gay street. Mm -hmm. So we went down to Soho and we walked, started walking down the street and it was really busy. And we were looking for this street that we'd been told was the only road where you can hold hands as a gay couple. And, and that would be the majority and that would be the place you would feel safe. So I remember we walked down this street and we saw this um, drag queen walking down the street. And we said, excuse me, in really quiet voices, could you tell us where the gay road is in London? <laughs> and she just looked at us and went, honey, you're on it. <laughs> and that was old Compton Street. That's actually, it's really poignant to hear that story, especially. It's kind of, it's, it's bittersweet in a way. It's, it's good that you had that experience together, but it's really sad that you had to search for a street where you could hold the hand of the person you love. Yes. And, yeah. Um, yeah, that was, uh, I, but I guess that was, for us, it was, it fueled a lot of our adventures. It was, where else can you feel safe? Where else can you feel like you're with other people that are on your, your, your wavelength? You know, back in North London, where we actually eventually moved to, you know, I remember Naz, we were in the car, and Naz pointed out and goes, oh my God, look, there's two men holding hands and our jaws dropped. Not in, you know, we're not in a, not in a horrible way, obviously, but but in a, oh my God, one day we can do that. Yeah, you can be quite taken aback when you do see that because you don't see it on a regular basis. Yes. So you must have both talked about the possibility of Naz coming out from time to time. What were his fears around coming out to his family? Well, Naz had... This was probably the the, the biggest um, the biggest thing in Naz's life that was uh, you know to to be resolved or not to never to be resolved. It was um, you know he you know he saw a, um, a like a psychotherapist for about a year to to talk a lot about this particular point, and the conclusion was that the risks or the implications or the kind of um, the complications that would result from him coming out was so great that he made a decision to put it into a box and that box should never be opened because he, you know, he feared the consequences of what would happen if that box was opened, not just for himself, but for us as well. And so that box was put to the side. And when Naz was in London, that box would never be opened. He might talk about it, certainly to our close friends, he would often talk about it, but it wouldn't be, um, it, it, you know, it wouldn't be a box that would even risk. You know, he hadn't got a date set. He hadn't got a deadline. He hadn't got a timeline. He was literally, that's the box that's never going to get opened. I can talk about it, about the box, but I can't ever open that box because he just, um, he just, you know, feared the consequences for both of us, what would happen if it was opened. So the possible consequences were just too terrifying to really face the situation head on. Yes. I mean, imagine, imagine facing a situation where if it was found out, mm. our relationship, we would never be, we would no longer be in control 
of our relationship that would now be taken out of our hands and the family um, and relatives would be doing everything they can to stop us. And where were you yourself at, at, with the coming out process? Which stage were you at? Well, so it was very different for me because um, soon after meeting Naz, I was so I was so in love with him. I was so proud of just being with him all the time that, you know, I took him to my uh, nan's house and she was about 84 at the time, I think she was. And bearing in mind, I'd never taken a friend ever to my nan's house. So this was a special thing. So I took... Uh, Naz to see my nan and we just had a cup of tea and we had some food together and I never thought anything of it but years later I found out um, after my nan had sadly passed away I found out from an aunt and she says did you know what your nan did for you because you need to understand that when you do need to come out to your dad and everyone on that side of the family you don't ever have to worry about it I said what what do you mean I said I haven't you know of course I have to worry about it and she says no your nan did something really special what she did was when Naz and you had left the house, she picked up the phone and she called everyone on her side of the family and she called everyone and said, one day, Matt's going to say something to you. And that thing that he says to you, I never wanted to be a problem. So now we're going to have a conversation about it. And she called around everybody and told them about Naz and I. And I didn't know this until sadly she passed away because she guessed straight away. Because, you know, we didn't realise at the time, but we were such a close couple, Naz and I were, that we were inseparable. You know, if one walked over that side of the room, both of us would walk over that side of the room. You know, our friends called us the twins because we were identical in every way apart from how, you know, physically we looked. And and because my family, the rest of my family, like my mum and, you know, my dad's partner and my mum and, you know, her partner, you know, they all loved Naz and they just accepted him as a, as a human being, as, as my best friend who was always there with me. They accepted him as part of the family and they treated him as if they knew he was my partner. And so the urgency for me to come out to my parents, for example, was never really there because there was no advantage to having that conversation because they treat him and respect him as if they knew. And certainly they did have suspicions, I've later found out, but they just thought, well, I'm never going to bring it up because I don't have a problem with it. So why would I bring something up that's not a problem? But your grandmother had, your nan had told them. Told my dad's side of the family, oh, yeah. yeah. So, but I didn't know that he, he knew. Yeah. And eventually I did come out to my dad in 2012 at the Paralympics. Yeah. And um, he didn't actually <laughs> flinch at all. He didn't, even, he didn't even look at me when I was talking to him. He was like, okay, okay, okay. So your father knew it was almost um, a tacit understanding. You just didn't speak openly about it. Yeah. But it was obvious to you that they didn't mind and they were, they were still accepting of you and of your relationship with Nas. Yeah, it, 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 just, it just wasn't the act of saying it yeah. and become an important thing. And, yeah, I understand. And that, because yeah. it's such a big thing, why, why put yourself through that? And it's, you know, at the time, I, I, you know, right now I can look back objectively and discuss it. But back then it was... You know, it's very different going yeah. through those emotions and trying to make sense. With of the them. benefit of hindsight, yeah. Exactly, exactly. That's such a lovely story about your nan. <laughs> I, really, I love that story. <sighs> and so how did Naz's own coming out, how did that unfold? So we'd, um, we'd gone back to Birmingham for, for Eid um, and Naz went to his family home and I went to my um, family home and a, a dear friend of ours had recently passed away and in London and his funeral was announced um, the date that the funeral was going to be rather was was going to be right in the middle of Eid and so it was quite a stressful time for Naz because he absolutely wanted to be at our friend's funeral but he also knew that would mean leaving Eid early and he knew how hard that would be for his family and so we you know we both both gone out and we you know bought new suits at the weekend and and to go to our friend's funeral and at the time when Naz was supposed to come and collect me in in Birmingham to to drive back to London for our friend's funeral which was in the evening you know the time that he was supposed to arrive to collect me it, it you know passed it was late and so he called me a short while later and there was a very 
distinct tone to his voice. And he said, I'm really sorry, Matt. I'm really, really sorry. We're going to be later. And I said, don't worry. We'll make up the time. We've got plenty of time. We can get there back to Birmingham. And he said, no, I'm sorry I'm late. I've got a really important reason. I said, why? And he said, I've, I've told them. And I said to him, told them what? And he just replied, everything. And just that one word, I just knew what he, I just knew what he meant. He didn't have to say anything else. And... I just remember a sinking feeling and then Naz arrived maybe like 10 or 15 minutes later and you could see he was visibly shaken and he, you know, he came into, you know, to see my family and, um, you know, he wasn't himself um, and he just needed to talk. So we, we left the family home and we jumped in the car and we drove as quick as we could back down to London. And this is this is why I know everything that happened because he told me in great detail over and over again from many different angles, um, many different perspectives, this is what happened. And what happened was as he was about to leave the family home, one of his relatives had come over to him who took great exception that he had to leave in the middle of e, the family celebration to go to a, in quotes, a friend's funeral. Now, there's some details which I'm not going to say, but, but that conversation ended up with Naz breaking down into tears. And if you'd ever met Naz, you would know that was pretty much impossible. He was an unbreakable person. He would only ever cry ever in the most intimate of personal situations where he was with somebody that he really loved and cared for and could trust. But that moment he broke down in tears in front of the family, which resulted in you know one of his parents come running over to him and saying, why are you crying? Why are you crying? Is it because you like men? Now, if you just imagine the details I've missed, but that but there's no reason why a parent should ever say, why are you crying, why are you crying? Is it because you like men, if the conversation before wasn't leading towards that? So at the age of 34, Naz was asked the question directly, and he was given the opportunity to do something that he thought he would never be able to do, which was to tell his parents who he really was and who they gave birth to. But he also knew the risks. Because Naz was so honest, he didn't know how to lie. And so when faced with a question, he answered in the only way that he could. And that was to say, yes, it is because I like men. I'm in love with Matt. We're engaged and we're going to get married. And in that declaration of love, in that moment where he wanted unconditional love and understanding of what he was given was a response that told him to go to a psychiatrist to be cured. They treated him like he was a disease, that something about him had to go, the, the most important part of him, which was his identity, that had to be got rid of. And he replied, you know, why do I have to go to a psychiatrist? There's nothing wrong with me. Why can't people just accept me for who I am? And that conversation was left unfinished because he had to leave that family home to come and pick me up. And so we raced down to um, London to, to our friend's uh, funeral and we mourned our friend on that day. And then the following day we celebrated our friend's life, um, a very colourful, very LGBT friendly funeral. And we celebrated the, the life of our, our friend and, and because of those two days we... Naz and I reflected a lot on what had happened. We tried to understand it, tried to question it from different perspectives. I know Naz was desperately trying to make sense of it, um, to reconcile everything. So I remember the, the second day of our friend's funeral, we, we went back home and we, we went to walk to our local cemetery because that's where we liked to walk. It was a, it's a closed cemetery, it's beautiful. It's, you know, families go there, people go on bikes, it's beautiful. And we just talked and we talked and we talked and... We just talked about how wonderful it was to be able to celebrate a friend's existence, um, their life. You know, because we'd never been to funerals before where we, where where the, where you expected to cry all the time. But our friend, it was the it was the opposite. We wanted to celebrate his life, and we talked about what would happen. You know, in our own when we got old, what would happen if you know when it was our time to go. You know, what would who would we have to talk about us? Because neither of us were aligned to a particular religion ourselves. You know, Naz was born into a Muslim family, but he didn't practice himself when he was away from the family home. You know, likewise, my family 
what's called non-practicing Church of England family. You know, we went to church with our nan sometimes, you know, was baptized, but in actual, you know, we also read Bible stories as a kid, but neither of us were aligned to a religion. But, and so we laughingly joked with each other that when it was our time to go, then maybe there were, we could have one person from each religion talk about us, because surely that'd be great. And we laughed and said, that's impossible. And then we went back home and then I just got a job that day I'd been offered a job that that evening actually to start the following day and so I accepted and um, Naz helped me do all the paperwork and then I asked him to help me get up the next morning to make sure I got to work on time and the next morning he he did he got up early made sure I was out of bed so I could get to my new job he texted me in the morning saying hi Matt how's the job going or sorry hi darling how's the job going and it was his even though it was a short um, message it was his way of saying I know you hate the job already um, but how's it going and then he called me at lunchtime and we our, our way of dealing things was to laugh to laugh at each other with each other to make each other laugh in the in any way we could and he after we you know joked with each other he said um, sorry love I've better go there's a phone call coming through and that was the last time that I ever spoke to him because we tried to get hold of each other throughout the day. We kept missing each other. And because I was at a new job, I just couldn't pick up the phone. But because he was calling me and or texting me, he was okay. And he seemed okay. And then it got to just gone five o'clock. And he called me. There was an absence of text messages and calls for a few hours. But when he called me at just gone five I thought that's okay because um he he's he's calling me I can call him again in about half an hour yeah. finish my work and I didn't pick it up and then he called me again about 10 minutes later and I didn't pick it up and then about 40 minutes later I got a phone call from a, an unknown number and I thought it's a recruiter I won't pick that up either I'll speak to them later okay and I got a text message from my sister saying call me and I thought I'll I'll call her in a bit. But then she texted me straight away and said, call me now. And she never talked like that, so I knew something yeah. was up. So I started to ask her questions when I called her. What's up? And she goes, where's Naz? I said, he's at home. And she says, you sure? And I said, yes. Where are you? And I said, I'm in Soho. And I started to ask her questions, and she says, you just need to go home. And when I started to ask her questions, my mom came on the phone, and she just said, I'm really sorry, son. Just pick up your things. Just pack your bag. And run. So I did. I threw everything in my bag. I said to the company, I just I don't know what it is, I have to go. And I ran, and I ran to the tube, and my heart's racing on the tube, and I'm thinking, what is the problem? Why? If Surely if somebody's passed away, I would have been told where I was in a quiet room. And my heart raced, and my heart raced, and my heart raced, and I got off the tube, and I ran up the hill, and it's now, everything is in slow motion, and my heart is beating, and I, I'd like to think I have manners, but I was pushing people out of the way, who were in the way, I was just pushing them out of the way. And I ran up the hill to the, to the place we just moved to and as I got to our road that's when I saw the the blue lights the police tape the crowds people taking photos and our road was closed off and I tried to run to our front door but I couldn't because it was police tape and I went under the tape and the police said you can't go in there um, and I said I live there and I said which flat I said the top floor I said you need to come with us and as they bundled me into the back of the police car and I'm thinking what have I done wrong as they bundled me into the police car that's when I glanced across and saw a red blanket on the floor and that's when that's when I began to realise that Nazar was no longer here and then the world goes silent and I'm sitting in the police car and I'm just listening for the words that I don't want them to say and I'm hoping they're not going to say those words and then they said the words that I didn't want to hear and they told me that Naz wasn't here. And that's when I lost it and I went mad. And in the back of the police car I was punching and kicking and screaming. And I was doing anything I possibly could do to try and not accept that news. And they left me in the police car. But then I broke free because I wanted to see Naz and I ran running over to him. I wanted to see, I wanted to see with my own eyes that that was him. But they, the police um, saw me break free and they threw me to the floor. And, you know, like a rugby tackle and dragged me back to the police car. And then they, they... they they eventually said I had to leave and they drove me off to a friend's house where I tried to self-medicate with a bottle of vodka and I could hear in the background that you know they were calling in the doctors to sedate me because I was going mad and I just couldn't 
I couldn't cope, and in the end, the police persuaded my family to take me out of London. I'm so sorry, Matt. And so, in the aftermath of Naz's death, you decided to establish a foundation in his memory. It didn't come from me, the foundation. It's soon after Naz passed away and I got back to London. Mm. The house was boarded up. It was a wasn't a crime scene anymore, but they'd done the investigation and I got back into the flat. I just, all I wanted to do was follow him. I knew where he'd climbed over because the police fingerprint powder was on the banister, on the railings of the balcony. I knew where he'd landed, there was still blood on the floor. So to me, the only thing that was important in my life now was to, was to follow him. And everyone who was around with my family and friends, they knew what was going on in my mind because I couldn't control my mind. It was yeah, like I, was, I was going understandably, mad. yeah. And I just said, look, I need to get some fresh air. I'm only, go- I'm only going downstairs. I want you can see me out the window. I'm going to the bottom of the road. So I bottom of the stairs. As I got to the bottom of the stairs, I couldn't face going back upstairs. So I walked to the end of the road. And when I got to the end of the road, I couldn't turn back to go home. So I walked to the next road and the next road and the next road. For two days, I went missing. Um, and the police were out looking for me. Um, they thought I was going to take my own life, which I was desperate to do. The press statement was prepared to go out to the newspapers and the TV. I almost got myself killed in the process, but I didn't care. Eventually, I came home, and the only thing I wanted to do was to to take my own life. That was it. And I waited patiently on that balcony. Hours upon hours I waited until the moment arrived when... Everyone in the flat who was supporting me and looking after me, I think some food had arrived and there was just a gap, just big enough, where I could climb over where they couldn't get me in time. And that was the only thing that mattered to me. And as I got myself up to to climb over, I heard Nazi's voice. And it was the most controlling and, and loud voices you could ever hear. It was his voice, it was his words. It wasn't just a faint voice in the back of your mind mm. like everybody has. It was a it was a, a an empowering, controlling voice that said, Matt darling, I know you're struggling to find a reason to stay, but I want to give you that reason to stay. And if you 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 always did everything that I ever asked of you. So if I ask this of you, I know you're gonna do it. And I want you to stay and I want you to set up a group or a foundation or something that's gonna help people in the same situation as us. So they don't have to go through what we went through. And as his voice faded, instead of continuing to climb over the edge, I walked back in the flat, locked the door, sat on the floor and just started crying my eyes out. And that's where our foundation came from. It came from Nazi's voice. From that moment. From that moment. And I didn't even know, and I knew it was his voice. I didn't even know what the word foundation meant. You know, I was that naive. I didn't know mm. anything about charities. So I knew it would come, it wasn't my mind at, at work. It was something else. And that's why... The foundation means so much to me because it saved my life. So why can't we use it to help other people too? He was watching over you. Yeah. It was like, it was an intervention in your darkest moment. Yep. Because if without his voice, I wouldn't be here now. And so establishing that foundation, it has helped you in a way to, in a some way to process the grief you've been experiencing. It has. It, it's, it's really helped me not only process those thoughts myself, but also it's helped me learn and understand so much more. I mean, I wish I knew what I knew now back then. I wish I, wish I knew Naz was, was feeling the way that he did because I, I think for Naz it was a sudden change of mindset because he, he seemed okay and everyone that spoke to me seemed okay. But what I've learned over the last few years with the foundation is really the the sheer scale of this problem with mm. with the homophobia that can come from a religious or cultural belief. But not only how big the problem is, but how subtle and how aggressive it can also be at the same time with with language and with actions, with violence in some some cases. And it's it's given me a reason to to stay here and through listening, because that's probably the most we do is listen to people, is to listen to the challenges they're facing and working out ways to find a way of helping them and help them on their journey. So, Matt, can you share one or two of the stories that you've encountered through the work that you're doing with the Nas and Matt Foundation? Obviously, of course, without going into a huge amount of detail. Yes, of course. So I will um, 
generalize the generalize the details and yeah. I'll change some aspects of it, but I'll I'll tell you the the main the main core of um, mm. some of the experiences that we've we've had with people coming forward. Um, I mean, we've had people who've contacted us who have met us in person, and you know the first thing they just said was was thank you, and I said well whatever for, and they said well your story, particularly the one that's in the Guardian which took you know a few months for them to finish writing that it was a very detailed account of what happened you know individuals have come forward to say thank you because that story it gave me a lot of strength and I was having problems with my religious parents and I printed off that story and I left it on the coffee table in the family home and then I went out for the day and then when I knew when I'd come back in the evening the family members would have read the story and now they understood the risks that were could be taking place if they don't stop opening their mind to accept their gay son or daughter so that's one thing is when you hear that our story is helping people in in that way but some of the experience of people who come forward to us probably one of the uh, stories that seriously impacted me the most was a, a story that was shared with us anonymously it was on a shared via, via an anonymous social network so the name of the person or the profile name doesn't exist but we do know where it came from and it was a busy busy day on the on a high street and the young man collapsed in the high street and the woman went running up to him and said what's the matter what's the matter why have you collapsed and this young man who was from a conservative religious family he said that the family only allow him out of the family home one day a week unsupervised and that family his parents had paid someone to come into the family home to beat the gayness out of him. They had paid someone to take him to an exorcism. And what he was given was a choice between either a knife or to accept that he had the devil within him, the gay the devil, the gay devil within him. And he agreed to do everything he could to get rid of that devil. And this young man was in a, a very bad physical way. He, he collapsed with exhaustion. And this woman says to him, why haven't you gone to the GP with your injuries? And he said, I can't go to the GP because the GP knows my family and they will tell, tell my family. She says, why haven't you gone to the hospital? And he said, I can't because my family know doctors at the local hospital. Because this was quite near a hospital where he collapsed. And then she says, why haven't you gone to the police? And he said, I have gone to the police and they know about me but I'm not willing to press charges against the only thing that I know, which is his family mm, and yeah. the community. And so this woman, the only thing she could do was take him to accident and emergency to have his, you know, physical and uh, his, his, the injuries dealt with in accidents and emergency and report him to social services in the hope. It was all it was, was a hope that something good might come from that. And the lady that reported this wasn't just a passing um, passerby. She was actually the paramedic who was called to the scene. And she said, in all the years of being a paramedic, this was one of the saddest stories that she'd ever come across because she felt completely powerless to take action. And when I heard about this, it really, it really affected me because it made me realise that all of the things that we were doing in the press, all of the social media work, all the videos, all the articles, all the interviews none of it would have reached this young man because his media would be controlled, uh, his internet would be controlled, TV would be controlled. And so after trying to find a solution to this, we, we um, this year on the 30th of July, we actually launched our first ever street sign and roadside ads campaign in the exact area where he was found because we managed to locate rough area where he was. So we dropped um, a couple of roadside ads in that area. One was for parents to make them understand that having a, a gay son is, is okay. And the other one was for an individual who's facing this, these challenges from their parents. So it's just a trial, um, but we would like to expand out to other areas where we also get told there's um, uh, religiously motivated homophobia in those areas. And that story really, ha really has affected me, but we've also had people contact us, like one other young man from the same religion. He contacted us via email and... What happened with, with him, he was at home on Facebook chatting to a man. He went upstairs to the, the toilet. He came back and he forgot to log out of Facebook. Oh. And it was a relative on the computer. 
reading his messages. Now, in the space of an hour, he'd gone from being in a family environment where he thought he was loved to within an hour running down the street with one bag under his arm, clutched under his arm, running for his life. And he contacted us a week after being on the streets. And this was the first time that we'd encountered this type of situation. So what we had to do was get him into uh, a place to stay, like then, like that moment, into a hotel there and then. And then we had to find a way of getting him back on his two feet. So we had to change. He had to change cities three times in the space of a week. Was that because there was family members who were searching for him? Yeah, his um, you know his father was a very prominent religious figure, and uh, he we had to help him negotiate a meeting with one of his relatives to get his passport back without an ID. Oh, of course, he couldn't yeah. even claim benefits. So we worked with him for the next um, four weeks until um, he got a place. Um, we funded him what we could. We had to find the clothes, even toothpaste, you know, underwear, toiletries, a suit to go to his to job interview with, and eventually got a job, and he got his benefits uh, in, just to get him back on his own two feet. And the most important thing was he had to feel like he was back in control of his life. Mm. Um, and there are other charities who, you know, work in this area a lot more than we do. You know, Albert Energy Trust, for example, they, yeah. they work in this area a lot more than we do. It's such an incredible work that you're doing. It really is amazing. But the sad thing about it is those stories are common. I mean, it really is happening out there. People being rejected by their families. A disproportionate number of homeless youth are LGBTQ. It's really saddening by how many people do contact us and need help and support. I mean, one young female, she she was getting a lot of pressure from her family and she was uh, she wasn't from the UK but she was here at the time when we met her and we met her and um, she knew the risks of uh, what was going to happen if she went back to her home country but she was getting a lot of pressure to go back for family and then when she was there we made her take a second phone and hide it somewhere at the very least have a sim card we went through all the precautions we ourselves uh, called around all of the charities that work specifically in this area to get advice and guidance that we could give to her and we when she went back to her home country you know her father was threatening to kill her and when she eventually did make it back to the uk i remember meeting her for uh, just to catch up in a coffee to see how she was doing and she then showed me um, all of the burn marks on her body that her own father had put on her because he found out that she was lesbian. And it's so saddening that this is going on. And it's so saddening that the individuals who can stop this overnight are the parents. But it's quite often it's the parents that are causing this. Not always. Sometimes it's the uncles. But, but quite often it's the parents who have this belief that being LGBTQI, particularly being gay or lesbian, you know, that it's wrong, it's a disease and it needs to be got rid of and it can never be spoken about in the community. And that's why sharing these stories are so important because they really have the power to change hearts and minds, don't they? They do. I think the most important thing in our line of work from a from a, from a um, at, from an in perspective, looking outwards to to the, in terms of projection, is actually is sharing stories in a in a way that's respectful, but also it allows people to understand exactly what some of the challenges are that that people face. Because you know, when we started the foundation, you know, the, some of the common stories that we heard and we still do, but particularly it was notable then because it was the first time we were hearing them. People were saying, first of all, I thought I was the only one. And we still hear that. I thought I was the only person who was gay and from my religion. Um, and also some people saying, but I thought this had stopped 30 years ago. I thought we had gay rights. Yeah, a lot of people are under that misconception, aren't yeah. they? Because discrimination has ended legally. Yeah. It legally, but when you when you move away from the legal protections and you actually, yeah. you're kind of... Um, the community controls much of your, many of your actions, the family controls your actions, then those legal changes almost are non-existent because it's actually the, uh, the mental and cultural shift that also needs to take place. And what would you say to the people out there who are or think they might be LGBTQ plus and are also from very conservative religious backgrounds or from the BAME community? What would you say to them? I would like to say, first of all, you're not on your own. There are other people 
like you from similar backgrounds who are out there who want to help and support you they want to see you grow and they will accept you so please don't feel that you're you're on your own some parents do struggle to understand and accept their children and just realize that don't rush to come out um, coming out is a is, is a journey um, not a destination sometimes it can take many years so don't feel that you need to come out or don't feel like you have to rush to come out before you even consider doing that i really would recommend that you become financially independent of your family in other words you can you can afford to live on your own in your own place on with your own money and you don't need to um, receive any money for your family to to exist because by doing that that gives you choices it means that if your family don't accept you if you come out you can still live independently and survive um, but we will hear for you and we hope that your parents do accept you so please just understand that you're loved and there is a whole community out there waiting to say hello to you and lastly, what would you say to the parents of those people who are struggling to accept their children's sexuality? What would you say to them? I would like to say to parents, please understand that your child was born that way. That's the way they were born. If you believe in God, then God made your child as they were born. So they can't choose to be... Um, gay or straight that's the way that they're born and they are looking for your unconditional love to accept them for for how they were made and for who they were born as so really the most important thing to do if you think your child is lgbtqi plus is just to hold out your arms and just give them a big hug and just tell them that you love them that you love them no matter what no matter who their partner is going to be, but just give them a hug. Just tell them that you love them because that one act, that one act of love, you might actually be able to save their life if they're fearing your reaction, if they're going to come out. Matt, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for sharing your story with us. I know it must be really, really hard to talk about. And... Just to say, I think the charity work you're doing is incredible. And unfortunately, it's still really, really important. So just I wish you all the best for the future. Thank you so much. Have a good day. Thank you.